Treffer Show 402. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview swim coach Andrew Schief. We discuss the topic of using a constraints-led approach to learning in the context of swimming and improving motor skills in swimming. We do cover the background of this methodology in the interview but I think we maybe don't quite make it clear enough so i want to say just a couple of sentences about it here uh, we're not talking about something abstract or obscure even though uh, at first it might sound like it but this is actually a very hot topic in coaching and in motor learning in general and has been for some time both in practice where you see it a lot in many different sports but one example would be football or soccer and uh, all the way to the highest level of the game and that is really important because uh that's, I mean, one of the sports in the world that has the most money. And uh, in academia, where more and more research is being done and finding a really good effects of using a constraint-sled approach in comparison to traditional approaches when it comes to motor learning and, and skill acquisition. So, yeah, that's enough for my preamble. I will let Andrew, who is the expert, explain the rest. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form Smart Swim Goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens, including splits pace stroke rate and heart rate this means that you can execute your swim workouts better whether it's pushing harder when you're starting to fall off the pace or holding back when you're accidentally going faster than you should it also means that if you're using a garmin in the pool you can finally get rid of that because the goggles automatically notice when you start and stop each of your intervals and give you accurate splits for each and every interval without the disruption of using your watch and most importantly for me at least it adds more fun and motivation uh, with the real time feedback that you get in the swimming and uh, it makes you want to go to the pool more often you can get 15 percent off the goggles with the code tts15 on formswim.com for slash tts and thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency, even when you're short on time. It's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home, even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool. And it is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming as it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming, like your catch and your power, and isolate them more easily than you can in the water. You can try the Zenate risk-free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back, and you can get 20% off your first order on senatesintro.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Andrew Sheaf. Welcome to That Your Show, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Uh, let's start with an introduction. Uh, tell us more about yourself. Sure. So um, I started uh, swimming pretty late in life. I think I was about 15 when I when I really started going. And then um, I kind of got hooked, like most people that get hooked in sports. It just kind of becomes something that's, um, you know, kind of all encompassing. And then I ended up swimming uh, in college in the US. And then I kind of hadn't had enough. And so I kind of started getting into coaching. And I've worked in college uh, swimming for about um, 16 years. And that's kind of, you know, where we're at today. And it's been a, a fun journey and just continuing to look to find ways to help um, athletes improve their swimming and to, to accomplish their goals. And you're a new author as well. That's kind of how we connected. Um, yeah. I'm reading your book at the moment. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. And so part of the um, 
part of like my, my coaching experience was that, um, you know, I, I kind of came to the realization that, that skills were a huge part of improving in swimming. And, um, the challenge was it, it's, you know, it's not easy to learn how to, to swim well and to, to help others swim well. And so as I kind of went through that, I, I, I had taken kind of a traditional approach in terms of just, you know, telling people what to do, like put your arm here, you know, do this with your head. And it, and it wasn't quite clicking as, as much as I'd like. And then, you know, I just kind of came across some alternative ideas and then started exploring those and then kind of built out, um, uh, a, a whole approach to, to coaching from that perspective. And, you know, the details of which we'll, we'll get into a little bit. And then, um, you know, along the way, one of the, uh, the originator originators of some of these ideas from more of a theoretical perspective, um, his name is Keith Davids. He had asked me if I was interested in writing a book about, um, some of the things that I had started to implement and it sounded like uh, a good idea to me. And so that's kind of how that process unfolded too. Yeah, so let's dive right into that. So uh, I guess the the ideas that we're talking about here, the concept is something called the constraints led approach to, mm-hmm. to learning to coaching. Can can you explain what that means? Yeah, sure. And so w- with kind of the the traditional approach to to teaching and learning is that um, you know you 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 think about what you're going to do and then you do it. And so um, you know basically the, from a coach's perspective. The, the, the purpose is to tell an athlete what they need to do, and then the athlete needs to do it. And, and the coach will kind of go back and forth. That was right. That was wrong. Do this, do that. And then athletes kind of get closer to what's considered ideal. And then in contrast with, with constraints, what's happening is that movement is, is more shaped by a bunch of different factors. And um, those are different um, constraints. And, and those constraints m- remove movement options. And then, and then movers basically choose whatever's left from those options and whatever's easy for them to accomplish the goal. Um, and it, and it sounds a little bit abstract, but it, and it, and it's probably a little bit easier to, um, really get an understanding of it by kind of going into some concrete examples. Yeah. Maybe we can start with, if you can give some examples of the yeah. actual constraints that we're right. dealing with. Right. And so there's, there's three main categories. So the first one is, is the task. And so basically people will choose to move differently based upon the task that they're given. And so in the swimming context, if you're going to do a short 25 meter swim, most athletes will choose to pick up their stroke rate really high. They'll move their arms really fast and and they'll try to do whatever they can to go as fast as they can. And so by choosing that task, that's going to influence how they swim. And then on the other end, if they're going to swim, um, you know, a, a, a 2000 meter swim, they're going to choose a very different stroke because they're going to have to be more efficient in terms of how, and, and when they swim. And so they're going to slow their stroke rate down. They're going to be a lot more patient. And those are choices that people automatically make. You don't necessarily have to tell someone to, to, to make those adjustments. They just kind of know to do that. And so that's an example of how the task changes how they move. And, and even a, a simpler example would be if, if the task is to swim freestyle, you're going to swim freestyle. Um, you're going to swim that stroke and, and, Likewise, if the task is to swim backstroke, someone's going to swim on their back and, and move like that. Um, and then another constraint is is the an individual constraint. And so, um, if someone is really tall, they're going to have different ways of moving than someone who's really short, and someone who's really 
um, if someone doesn't have a lot of strength, they're also going to choose to swim a little bit differently too. And so the structure and the the constraints within an, within an individual, like both in terms of their mobility. Um, and so like with, with triathlon, you see some, uh, a lot of people have really stiff ankles because they do a lot of running and they don't necessarily do things to, to loosen those ankles up. And so that's going to change how they kick. And there's nothing that they can necessarily do um, to, to influence that. But that, that mobility is a constraint within them and that's going to influence how they kick. And another big one is, fatigue. So it, as swimmers or as, as anyone starts to fatigue, they're going to start moving differently too, because they're getting tired. They have fewer options in terms of how they move. And so they start to shift how they swim. Um, and so that's another big example of um, a constraint. And then the last one is environmental constraints. And it's um, not so much a, an issue in swimming, but it is more of an issue in triathlon, because if you're um, anyone knows if you're swimming in a pool and you're swimming in open water in a race, it's going to be different and, and people have to make adjustments based upon the environment they're in. And so if you're in, um, a really, with specific to open water, if it's super smooth, it's glassy, there's no, um, there's no other swimmers around you. You're going to swim one way, but you're going to have to change how you swim if it's super choppy, if there's tons of other athletes and everyone's kind of swimming on top of each other. And so, these are all things that that influence how people swim, and if they're not accounted for and they're not understood, it can be very hard to um, change how someone swims because there uh, there's these other factors that are pushing them in certain directions, and you have to kind of understand what those are, and you can work with them to help uh, create change. Mm. Yeah, and and uh, so the idea here is that you can you gave some examples there, and you could yeah. also feasibly combine many of them to right, depending right. on what you want to achieve. So you could you could use an an individual constraints, maybe using some uh, swim toys to help right. somebody create more buoyancy or or right. just length as, right. at the same time as you're specifying a certain distance to swim and a certain stroke rate or stroke count and and all sorts of combinations really. Right. And so, yeah, exactly. They interact. And so, um, you know, someone, uh, and, and then once you understand or you have an appreciation of what, how these things change and, and what different, um, activities, how they influence them, then, like you said, you can start to manipulate them and then you can start to, um, create change that way rather than having to explicitly tell someone move your hand to the left or whatever. If you can start to get, you know, change some of these constraints, you can start to get some of those changes, um, almost just by what you ask them to do. And the premise is that this is a more effective way of, of improving your, your skills. So can you explain why, why that is? Why is it more effective yeah. than telling somebody to move their hand to the left? Sure. So, so there's a, a few different reasons. And so one is that um, we're all individuals. And so the best solution for us may be a little bit different. So if you and I were to go swim the optimal solution is probably going to be a little bit different because we have, you know, we're just, we're different. We're physically different. Um, and so the, one of the challenges is that you can't necessarily know exactly what someone's supposed to do. And so rather than telling them exactly what to do, you put them in a position where they can figure out the best solution for them. So, so that's one aspect of it. Um, two is that when, especially when you're dealing with large groups, it can be very difficult to um, have these kind of coaching conversations with a lot of athletes. And that can be a huge challenge in terms of, you know, it's just not feasible to 
teach some each and every athlete over time. And that was probably the biggest reason that pushed me away from the traditional approach was I just couldn't manage effectively that many athletes. And rather than saying, well, I guess I can't teach them, I wanted to have a different a different solution. Um, and then a, th- uh, a third thing that can be important is that when, when athletes are thinking a lot, um, that can cause, you know, they can just get in their own way. And so, um, especially when racing and they get nervous, they start to think a lot too. And if they don't really have something concrete to think about in terms of their technique, they're less likely to mess it up. It's kind of counterintuitive. It's like, you don't actually want people thinking when they're racing. And so if you can help them learn in a way that doesn't require a lot of thinking, then their default strategy when they get under pressure isn't to think as much. And that can be really powerful too. Mm, yeah, that that last one is a really interesting one, actually. Yeah, right. Um, it, so we talked about the traditional approach a bit with just telling somebody and, and the athlete tries to tries to do it. Uh, and then this the constraints led approach. Are there any other kind of options that exist for, for learning, for skill acquisition? Um, I, I think so... Um, actually real quick, one other, um, uh, point that I wanted to make in terms of one of the advantages is that a lot of times, um, it can be actually really hard to describe what a movement is. And when you can put someone in a position when they can actually just feel it, that can help them learn a lot faster because they actually get to experience what they're wanting or what they want to accomplish rather than trying to think their way through. And, And that's also, um, really valuable. Um, but, but in terms of your question about the different options and so the, the kind of the, there's different variations, I guess, of, of everything, but there's two kind of ways of thinking about it is one where it's more of an explicit approach where like you're, you're specifically telling people what to do. And that's a little bit more of the traditional version. And the other option is more of like an implicit approach when they, when they kind of learn by experience. And I think that there's different shapes and, and, or not shapes, but different variations of like constraints type thing, but they all tend to be in the, the implicit thing where you're just trying to give people experiences where they can figure things out for themselves. And so to me, those are the two, um, kind of big camps and there there's, you know, small variations within those, but, um, to me that those are the kind of the big, uh, separations. Right. And before we get into some more really specific examples of how to apply this in a swimming context, uh, just more from the overall and even theoretical uh, mm-hmm. background of, of this approach of the constraints led approach how much how much science is there that exi- that exists around whether this is an effective learning strategy can can you talk a little bit more about that evidence sure. base sure and, and that's not necessarily my, my expertise and so if i um, misspeak a little bit um you know for, please forgive me so the the two major um kind of like theoretical backgrounds one is that um, in, in kind of complex systems theories and, and human beings are certainly complex systems. And the way we learn is, um, and the way we move is pretty similar. And so you have all these little inputs and small changes in the inputs can lead to big changes in the outputs. And so it's, um, and, and there's a lot of, um, you know, you, you can get different, pretty different changes in movement with pretty small changes in, in what's being asked or what's required. And so that's, that's a big aspect of the, the theoretical underpinning. And another one is the, the field of um, ecological psychology. And so that's deals with a lot of like our ability to perceive information from the environment. And that's another huge part of um, uh, the thought process behind it, because a big, a big piece of it is that the, some of the, the ideas center around that, that we don't necessarily 
move by we, how we think, we move through how our, we perceive our environment. And so the sensation and the information that we get. And so that's another kind of the, the, the theoretical underpinning. And then in terms of some of the specific evidence for um, the, the validity of the approach, there, there are a bunch of training studies where they've done these different learning interventions where they have a kind of a traditional approach and then they have um, you know some form of constraints. And those have been pretty positive. Um, in terms of demonstrating the validity of it. Um, but for me personally, um, the value I see in it is that it seems to explain some of the things that I've seen as a coach. And it also ha- tends to make my life uh, easier in terms of how I can help athletes learn and it makes it more effective. And so f- for me, rather than while I find the some of the scientific evidence to be pretty compelling, the, the fact that it seems to work more effectively is what's more most relevant for me as a coach. And it also, um, like I said, it kind of explains some of the things I see in terms of how people learn skills. And so that for me has been what's been most, um, you know, just most compelling to me. Yeah, no, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And well, I can only basically echo what you said, but uh, I've also went and looked at some of the just briefly glanced at the evidence that, that I could find uh, since starting to read your book as well, trying to look into this. And and as you say, there are there are definitely studies that, for example, do a, a controlled um, a controlled intervention where you pin the constraints right. and approach versus a traditional approach, and and you can study learning and and find uh, and in most cases it seems as you say the evidence is pretty compelling that that in right. many cases the constraints approach is more effective for right for learning and i think yeah. for listeners that are, that are really interested in in this and especially kind of going more into the, the theory of it there's the pacey performance podcast is one where this topic is discussed quite a lot and, and yeah. with like real experts on also on the right. scientific side of it so i would right. recommend them going and checking that out and, and one thing to add with the, with the training studies too is that, like anything, this is a skill. And so, um, you you know, there are people that are going to be more or less effective at implementing this approach because they have more practice with it. They, and and um, the the more they understand the, the constraints, the more effective they're going to be. And so sometimes the the training studies don't necessarily reflect that because they're they're more or less designed by um, you know people with great theoretical understanding, but they don't necessarily have the practical experience with that. And so I think sometimes the the differences between the two groups are not going to be as obvious in um, you know a scientific context because you're not necessarily always dealing with people that are, you know, their profession and the, and and their um, you know, basically their passion is working with these ideas in a practical sense. And so that's something to consider too. And so the better you get at it, the more differences there's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So uh, if we go into the the practical aspects of it, um, yeah, maybe we can start if you gave the examples of some constraints already, but, but if you can maybe, yeah, extend that list a bit and talk about sure. the most common constraints that you would use in sure. in coaching practice. Sure. And so we can start with with the task constraints um, because those are the ones that tend to be um, you know the most easily manipulated. And so the the, the most obvious and and so what's kind of cool about this is that a lot of athletes and coaches are using these a lot of these ideas pretty intuitively. They don't necessarily they just may not have the the framework from which to use those, which I think when you have the framework too, it can be even more effective. And so one of the big ones is speed. And so the different speeds are going to require different ways of swimming. And when people are trying to find ways to swim faster, 
they're trying to change how they swim to be more effective. And so having athletes swim at, at different speeds, controlling different speeds, changing different speeds, all those things um, can be really effective at helping promote learning because people are going to have to find search for solutions to um, make those things happen. And so whenever people are trying to accomplish goals, that's necessarily going to help them um, or require them to search for, for new solutions. So um, as an example, like you can have someone try to alternate speeds within a repetition or between repetitions, and that's going to force them to change how they swim on command and to, to try to accomplish those goals. And so that can be uh, one really effective way to um, help learning. And another one is for athletes to count their strokes. So whenever you ask someone to you know, count their strokes or change the number of strokes they're taking, whether it's take more or take less, they're necessarily going to have to change how they swim. And so that can be a super powerful way to help promote uh, learning and to help promote um, different ways of moving. And what's cool too, is that, you know, longer strokes are definitely related to faster swimming in that better swimmers tend to take fewer strokes. And there are exceptions to that, of course, but, but whenever you're asking people to move towards that, you're changing their swimming in a positive way. And so the more they can learn to, um, swim with, with a lower stroke count or a longer stroke, they're going to be more effective. And then another, um, task constraint is that people use is, is any sort of drill is, is a task constraint because you're asking them to swim differently, um, based upon whatever the drill is requiring of them. And the key is that you want the drill to be something that represents what you actually want them to do. And so for instance, one arm freestyle is a pretty common drill that, that people will use a lot. The, in, in, in some ways it can mimic the arm path that you would see in regular freestyle, but the potential problem is, is that the rhythm of it is just totally different from regular freestyle. And so while you're, you're giving them a task constraint that forces them to swim differently, it might not be forcing them to swim differently in the way you want, because it might actually be teaching them a rhythm that you wouldn't want them to do. And so that's where you have to be pretty careful about the drills in terms of, um, what's going to actually change and what's going to change in the way that you want so that you get the changes you want. And that's kind of the experience part is you start to figure out when I do A, B, or C, I get the change I want. But when I do X, Y, and Z, I don't get the change that I want. And it might differ from person to person. And so that's why there's kind of like these principles, but there's not always rules in terms of you have to do this, this, or this. It's more about what happens when you ask someone to do something, do you get the change that you want? And if not, what are you going to do instead? Um, and then, so an, a, a, a pretty clear example of a task constraint that um, can be really effective is so a lot of athletes, um, swimmers and triathletes um, struggle with their breathing. And so one thing you can do is you can take a paddle and put it right on the top of their head and have them swim forward and then try to breathe with that. And if they pick their head up or they pull their head to the side to breathe, then the paddle is going to come off. And so the only way to successfully accomplish that task is to keep the paddle on the head by breathing really effectively. And so that's an example of, I could spend all day telling you, keep your head low when you breathe. Don't pull your head to the right when you breathe. Keep your head in line when you breathe. And you might not really understand that, but the second you put the paddle on and it comes off, you understand really quickly that I'm not moving my head in the way I need to when I breathe. And that task is constraining me. It's forcing me to keep the head down and the head straight when I breathe. And that can be really powerful for people that um, don't necessarily understand what they need to do when they're breathing and they can't feel it. And so that's a that's one of my favorite examples because it's 
pretty obvious what's happening. And it's pretty clear the impact of effective breathing or not effective breathing. So that's, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna, I mean, that's a neat, that's a really, uh, really cool example, actually. I've, I've never seen that. So, so that, that works. That's a curious one. Uh, yeah. But the question I was going to get to here is that when, when you talk about drills, uh, like the one arm freestyle, I mean, that's still somewhat close to, to freestyle right. swimming. There are a lot of drills that are much farther removed from right. that. So, right. so what's your take on the level of how far removed from actual swimming would you go yeah. and it's still being effective? Right. So, th- so this is kind of where, where it gets the, the practical app, the practical side and the practical skill is, um, what becomes important. And so I would say if you're trying to get someone to move in a certain way, you can go as far away as you have to, to get them to in the right positions so that they can figure out whatever skill you're trying to help them learn. But then you have to try to get back to regular swimming as fast as possible. So say, say, um, you know, you have to, you have to keep using drills that are further and further away. And then all of a sudden you get the change that you want, but then you have to start to like, um, see if you can take steps back and, and, and get closer and closer to swimming because, you know, the further away you get, the less likely it is to, to, um, show up when you actually swim. So you want to stay as close as you can. And then if you have to move further backwards, you can, and you have to move further away and you can, but you don't want to just like stay there. You want to start trying to get closer and closer back to regular swimming, if that makes sense. And so there's not really a strict rule. It's more about, um, what's happening and, and, and what seems to make a difference and then trying to get closer to swimming as possible. And so, you know, a strategy that I like to use is say that the one arm freestyle, for whatever reason, whatever problem you're trying to solve, it really helps. But what I would do is have them do a lap or two of one arm freestyle and then swim regular freestyle right after that, and then go back and forth between the two. So whatever they're learning in the regular one arm freestyle, they're starting to apply that in the regular freestyle as, as soon as, as possible, because if you just do the one arm freestyle or whatever drill it is, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to transfer that to the regular freestyle. But if you kind of pair the two together, that can be more effective. Yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, yeah, do you want to move on to some of the individual constraints and how you use them? Yeah. And so there, there are two big ones. And so the first one is fatigue. And so you'd think the, so traditionally when people talk about learning, they'd say, um, that, that you, you know, you want to learn when you're fresh, do your drills in the beginning of a workout when you're fresh and, and, and that's when you're going to learn most, but fatigue can be pretty, um, valuable because it actually changes how you move through the water. And sometimes that can be a really good thing. And so, um, when you're tired, you tend to have more awareness of what's happening. And so let's say we're trying to work on something with the arm pull. If the arms get a little bit tired, sometimes they try to, sometimes they're more effective at finding the really efficient way to do things because they're really tired. So they don't have the energy or they don't have the resources to do something really well or, or to do it um, at full capacity. So they have to find the most efficient way to do that. So fatigue can actually be pretty, pretty useful too. Um, and, and, and let's say you, uh, as an example, you had an athlete who you wanted to use their legs a little bit more because they didn't really have a good, a good coordination or timing, what you could do is you could have them do some really hard stuff with their arms and then ask them to do something pretty challenging with full swimming. And they're going to have to use their legs a little bit more to compensate for that. And so you can kind of influence that in that way. And you can do the same thing with, with their legs. If, 
um, someone's using their legs too much, what you could do is make their legs really, really, really tired and then have them swim regular freestyle in, in, in a certain task so that they have to use their arms more effectively. Um, and then they can help learn to use their arms that way. So that can be, um, a, a pretty interesting way to help promote learning. And the other one is, um, training aids. So I mentioned earlier that like how long people's arms are, how strong they are, all these things can influence how they swim, but you can't really like change the length of someone's bones. But what you can do is you can use paddles or you can use fins or, um, and that'll change, you know, basically how big someone's hands are and they're going to interact with the water differently. Likewise, you can, um, put a pool buoy in, in, and that'll change how they float through the water. And so, those can all be really valuable tools to help someone change how they swim. You just have to know what the impact of, of that is. And so another one that, uh, that I like, that's one of my favorites. And so another big skill is, is most people or most athletes, most swimmers have heard of is keeping the, uh, a high elbow or, or an early vertical forearm in their pull. But that can be pretty, like, that's kind of hard to understand. You don't really, it makes sense conceptually, but it, you don't necessarily know how it feels. So you can take take a paddle and you can hold it upside down, and that way the the wrist gets locked. And so whenever you try to move your hand backwards, the forearm is going to move backwards too. And so you've placed a physical constraint on their body. You've changed how their body works by kind of locking the wrist, and then that way they can start to actually feel what what using their forearm really feels like. And then when they go back to regular swimming they have a better sense of what that actually means because they've felt it and they've experienced. And that can be a lot more powerful than just being told how to do it and what to think about. And so those are um, some really, and, and the paddle cap freestyle is kind of another one with an individual constraint because you're forcing them to keep their head in a, in a particular um, position. And so that's, those are examples of, of individual constraints and how they can be changed to get different impacts on, on how people move. Yeah, with, with the fatigue uh, in the book, you have some some great examples, and it's uh, it's important. One thing I want to highlight there is that it's not just necessarily being fatigued from swimming, but you also have examples. You could do anything. Do, yep. Doing strength training at on the pool deck, uh, yep. for example, tiring out the legs with with a bunch of squats. That, that would be right. an example. Right. Um, yeah, but with, so with the with the training aids, uh, coming back to, I mean, especially if we think about triathletes they will generally race in a wetsuit at least amateur right. triathletes because of the way right. that the the temperature right. limits are set would that influence how you would assign training aids to to triathlete swimming would you train more with like pull boys for example that increase buoyancy or yeah what, what's your thought on that yeah yeah and so so and that's that's the thing too it's like whenever the demands of of the races or the events change, how you use all of these things will, will differ because you're trying to accomplish something differently. And so, yeah, for, for sure. I think, um, use, um, you can definitely get away with using a pool buoy more. I, I think that can be problematic, especially when swimmers, because they become dependent on it. And, and then when they, they you take the buoy away, then they, they can't do what they need to do. But, but in, you know, if someone's wearing a wetsuit, that's not necessarily a problem because they'll have that advantage, um, too. And so for sure, that can be something that's, that's definitely more valuable and it can help swimmers learn how to, you know, how to swim and how to be effective when they have a little bit more flotation, because it is a slightly different skill. So I think for sure that how you use things depends on exactly what you're trying to accomplish. And so when the, when the rules, when the rules change, because you're swimming a different event, which, you know, a triathlon, an open water triathlon swim, with a wetsuit is a different event than a pool race. And so 
yes, for sure. You, it can definitely influence how you'd use it. And I think for a lot of people, they need to learn how to, to swim with higher hips um, because they're going to experience that when they race for sure. And what are some examples of how you would use uh, fins and paddles? In what situations would you use them? Yeah. So for for paddles, um, I like I like that upside down one. You can there's another one that you can actually like squeeze the paddle on the side of it. It's I call it like pinch paddles, and that's another one that kind of forces people to um, be really particular about um, how they're pulling because if they're not, it you know if you do that for more than like a minute, like your your hands like basically cramp up because <laughs> you're trying so hard to keep it stable. Um, and so that can be another one to do. Paddles can be effective. Basically, whenever you're trying to help someone learn how to pull, paddles can be used in different ways to to um, help that. And so another way to use it is to put a paddle on one hand and have no paddle on the other. And so obviously the one with the paddle is going to feel a lot stronger in the water. And what you can tell athletes to do is, all right, you feel that strength on that one side. Now in the hand that doesn't have a paddle, I want you to tr try to create that same pressure and that can help them learn how to be more effective with their pulling as well. And so whenever you're trying to improve the way um, someone creates force or propulsion with their upper body, it can be really effective to use paddles in, in, in a lot of different ways. The In terms of fins, so sometimes when you're doing drills that are done particularly slow, um, and slow enough where it might cause someone's hip to, to sink, especially if they're not a particularly good swimmer, then fins can be really effective because it helps them keep the hips up in that, in that respect or when you're doing those type of drills. And because you're not necessarily working on keeping the hips up in that drill, it allows you to focus where you'd like to focus instead of having to like, you're trying to do this drill, but you're really struggling to keep your legs up. Like that's just a distraction that you wouldn't want to use or you wouldn't want and and a pool buoy can do something similar. The other thing I like fins for is so the way the the stroke happens um, changes when you swim really really fast, and so that can be really helpful for using or fins can be really helpful for helping athletes swim much faster than they otherwise could for the same effort level. And so when they're trying to learn what it feels like to swim fast, which isn't the same when they're swimming slower, then fins can be really helpful for that too. I think when you get into problems with both fins and paddles is, is that in some ways they can make swimming easier. And so if you're not being intentional about why you're using them and you're just kind of using them because they make swimming easier, that's kind of avoiding learning as opposed to using them with purpose so that you can actually make learning more effective. Yeah. And a, a couple of other training aids that you mentioned uh, and have some interesting applications for would be things like uh, like a parachute and yep. uh, drag socks. So that's something yep. that I think most triathletes would be maybe less familiar with or not having experience with using them. Yeah. Can you talk more yeah. about that? Sure. sure. So, th so that's um, th those basically just create more resistance. And so it's particularly with, with the parachute, what can be really helpful is that so when you pull your arm through the water when you have a parachute you're going to get a lot more pressure on your arm because you're you you have a lot more you know you're you're towing this device and one that can help build strength which can be useful but two it also makes the feedback on you that you feel a lot clearer and so what can be really useful for that is so say you're pulling your arm through and then all of a sudden you do something where you just kind of lose a lot of pressure you're going to feel that and and that means there's something in your stroke that uh, you're not being consistent with with moving um, water backwards so that you can move forward. And so it really highlights the, um, you know, some of the errors that you might be making and it makes it easier to feel it because I think a lot of, a, a big challenge in swimming is that it's hard to, 
to feel what's effective. And it's hard to, it's just totally different than anything we experience on land. And so it's hard to feel what what's happening. And the resistance stuff can really slow things down and make the sensation more obvious. And so that can be really, really powerful um, too. And then from, uh, you know, a, a big part of swimming effectively is moving water backwards with your arms. And if you're not doing a good job with that and you're trying to swim against resistance, you're simply not going to go anywhere. And so that's going to be another really powerful source of feedback that, all right, what I'm doing is not working and it's a lot more obvious that it's not working. I need to start figuring out how to, how to do things differently. And so whenever you can make, with all learning, whenever you can make feedback clearer, progress is going to be faster and resistance can be a, a, a pretty powerful tool to do so. And, and instead of thinking about it, like this is a strength training tool in the water, it's also a really powerful learning tool. And so when using that perspective, even if someone's like, well, I swim, you know, open water races that last an hour, I don't think strength is that important, but that's maybe not the purpose that you'd be using. You'd be using it for, you're using it to help improve your skills as opposed to kind of develop strength. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, a, a good message kind of, uh, or that we should keep in mind through to the end of this episode, really that, uh, yeah, the, it's not, because I think, uh, a lot of uh, again a lot of people that are training for triathlon especially i think it's we think a lot about the physiology and uh, of of the different uh of swimming of biking and running but yeah the the learning of swimming especially something maybe that we don't think so much about and, and when we think about any training aid or any technique it's a lot a lot of it is often about yeah how do we improve our right. our physiology our fitness but you right. know not so much about improving the skill and the parachute would be a great example right. where, well you're actually improving your skill as well right and and not and uh, i guess another um kind of going back to a question a while ago another benefit is that what's cool about a lot of these ideas is that they kind of help you train and learn at the same time and so that way an, another big problem is that there's this kind of this separation. Well, should I work on my skills or should I develop my fitness? And, you know, you know, so, so when they're working, someone's working on their skills, they're thinking about how they're swimming, but they're not swimming with any effort. And so they're not really developing their training. And then when people switch to training mode, they just go as hard as they can and they don't necessarily work on their skills. But, and when you're, when you're using constraints, you tend to be able to do both at the same time because the training activities that you do are helping you learn. And that way you don't necessarily have to make that trade-off between skill and, um, training which i think is a, a really another really important benefit of it yeah that was going to be my next question actually the, okay. the connection betwe between between the skills and physiology and may maybe you have covered everything that you want to cover but is there are there yeah. any other details that you want to get into on that connection yeah and so so i think um it, it's 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 more that they, they're kind of combined and so you're using it to challenge the swimmers um, physically, but the, but when you're doing it in the right type of activities, that's also challenging them technically. And so it's all kind of the same thing. And you're, you're just trying to practice the really good skills in harder and harder conditions. And because, you know, it, I think another um, misconception is that if you can do something really slowly, that means you'll be able to do it in a race. And that's totally not true. Like you have to be able to do it slowly first, but then you have to be do it, be able to do it fast for a long period of time when you're getting tired. And so you have to learn how to do these skills, um, with, uh, you know, with, with fatigue and effort. Um, and so, so a, a set example I like to, to use. And so, um, we're, we're talking about the, the vertical forearm and, and all that stuff before. And so if I was to give someone, um, a set where it's like, 10 50s with a light parachute and they're only allowed to take 
a certain number of strokes and they have to hit a certain time. And the only way, and, and the only way they're going to be able to do that in that situation is by, by pulling pretty effectively, because if they're taking a lot of strokes, that means they're not going to be efficient with the pull. If they're swimming slow, that means they're not um, being efficient with their pull either. And if they have resistance, it's going to make it harder to do those. And so is that a training set or is that a technique set? Because to me, it sounds pretty hard swimming pretty fast with, with a low stroke count against resistance. That doesn't sound very easy, but it's forcing them to swim with good skills and learn how to explore and, and challenge their skills. So sets like that, there's not really the distinction between the two because you're accomplishing both at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that, that makes a lot of sense because there is a lot of uh, kind of research about how your, your stroke mechanics change depending sure. on your physiology and your fitness sure. and the, the speed that you're swimming at and so on. Yep. So, so definitely makes sense. Um, how do you, as a coach, uh, do, how do you have a system like, uh, almost like a periodization of how you, how, how you improve a swimmer with a constraints led approach? What is the process that you go through with what to improve and when and so on? Sure. And so, so this was another, um, reason that I kind of moved towards this is because I, I, I knew that I needed a, a, a system to, to kind of make these changes happen or help athletes learn these skills, especially when you're dealing with a lot of athletes. And so the, in, in a lot of ways, in order to do that, you kind of have to simplify things. And so to me, the, the, the way that people swim fast is they're able to create more propulsion with their arms or their legs, and they need to be able to, um, kind of stay in alignment. So they want to keep everything pretty moving straight forward. They don't want to be, have their head up. They don't want their arms or legs going out to the side. They want everything straight forward. And so the, those are the, the, the biggest skills that need to be learned. And so the way you think about it over the course of a, a, a training season or a build up to a race is that the first thing you do need to do is help them learn, learn the, the basic skills and, and improve them relative to where they are at. So the first thing I kind of call it is like, do it right. So you're helping them change how they're swimming so that there's an improvement in their basic skill level. Then it's simply a matter of starting to do things, learn or execute those same skills faster because they need to be able to do it. It's one thing to do it slow, but you need to be able to do it fast. And then you also need to be able to do it for longer periods of time. And then once they get better at those things, it's starting to do things harder. And so they're working with fatigue because they also have to be able to manage that in the race, regardless of what race they're, they're doing. And so the basic framework is that you're um, doing it right. And so you're going to use whatever tools or whatever strategies um, whatever constraints that you have that are going to be most effective for those people, you start implementing those right away. And then you're just going to do everything in, in more difficult conditions over time. And so you're going to do it faster, you're going to do it longer, and you're going to do it harder. And so in, in, in the context of, you know, kind of traditional training periodization, it's pretty similar. You start off with some really easy stuff, then you start adding some short speed stuff and you start adding more and more longer endurance stuff. And then you start adding the hard race specific stuff towards the middle, towards the end. And so it's the base, same basic framework. There's just more of a focus on executing the skills in, in really well and then progressively more uh, difficult conditions over time. And as you do that, you're kind of getting closer and closer to race specificity where towards the end you're doing you know, race specific type stuff, but you're just doing it with a focus on executing great skills as opposed to, you know, trying to develop or just focusing on developing certain physiological systems. 
Yeah. And compared to a traditional approach where you might tell a swimmer to, again, move your left hand here or right. do this with your forearm and so on, would you say that with the constraint-led approach, there is a bigger responsibility on the on the learner, on the swimmer to think about what they're doing? Do, do they have to be more, yeah, just take more responsibility yeah. for their own improvement? I think so. And, and and kind of like I mentioned earlier, I try to stay away from like um, thinking so much. But what they do need to do is they need to try to solve the problem that I'm asking them to, to, to accomplish. And so let's say I, um, I'm going to have them swim 10 100s. They need to hold a minute and 10 seconds and they need to take 12 strokes per lap. They may, you know, th- I, when I ask you know, a certain person to do that, I'm going to ask them to do something that's going to be challenging for them, but, but, you know, something they can probably do, um, with, with a little bit of effort. And so what their responsibility is to figure out how they're going to do that. And so they, they definitely have to become problem solvers because they're going to have, they're going to be expected to accomplish whatever task that I give them. However, they're not necessarily like, just think about what you're doing the whole time. So I think that you have to kind of coach them to become problem solvers. But the thing that's um, that I found is that when you set them up for success and they start to experience success, it can be pretty fun to solve problems because, you know, it's pretty rewarding. You get to do, you know, you're, you're, you're making progress, you're seeing your progress. And so for, for people that just want to swim um, and that just like to train, which, you know, is a, is, is, is a fair number of people. I think the way to do it is you give them things that still allow them to work hard, but you just give them a little bit extra that they have to work towards too. And something like just, all right, you got to control your stroke count a little bit can be really effective for those people at the, at the beginning, because you're not asking too much of them. And then over time, you know, you can start to ask more and more and more of them and they're able to meet that challenge successfully while still working really hard. And so they get what they want. You get what you want. Everyone's happy and they see progress. Yeah. And, and you said earlier on that one of the advantages is that in a team setting, you it's more manageable to improve people's right. skills because you don't have to you it's not just not possible with that amount of people to look at right. the and give give individual feedback as much as, right. as you would need to but are there any challenges with i'm um, if you have, have different kind of people with different let's say learning uh preferences in terms of how much or how little problem solving they are able to or want right. to do, do is it still manageable within a team setting to yeah. So, so the work is, so the work gets done before you, before the, the training session. What I mean by that is you're, you're thinking about the, the individuals that you're working with and you're like, all right, what's the best way to do this for them? And then when I give them, so say, say that I, I use that set 10, 100s, then I might give them all slightly different tweaks based upon what they're needed to do. And so they have, um, the expectation of what they're expected to accomplish. And, and so if you and I are doing the training, same training session, we might have different expectations based upon, what, you know, what our coach thought that we would best be able to handle. And so from that perspective, it can be more difficult for a coach, um, prior to, because you have to think about what's going to happen with each athlete and be intentional about that. But, but you have time in that respect because you're not having to do, you know, you don't have a finite window of time to have to communicate with athletes. Um, and then with, with a group setting, what, what does change when you're in that training environment, the communication is more, is a little bit different. It's instead of telling people what to do, it's more about checking up on like, Hey, how, Hey, what was your time on that? Well, you know, how many strokes are we on track? And then they're just kind of giving you like thumbs up, thumbs down. And, and they're just trying to figure out and you're helping them through the problem solving process as opposed to telling them what to do. So I think the, 
to answer your question, the, the biggest way to do that is rather than giving um, a blanket assignment to everybody, you have to find ways to kind of individualize things based upon what you're seeing with the athletes over time. And you can do that because you have time when you're writing the practice to, to think those things through. And the more familiar you get with a certain athlete, the easier it is to do that because you kind of know what to expect from them. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's what you said there about how you would ask them for feedback after after repetition for that uh, reminded me of you have a a whole section in the book or a whole chapter where you talk about basically the language of coaching in in this setting and uh, basically that you're not telling them that oh your yeah again your hand was out of alignment but you're 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 asking questions and asking for feedback and and that that falls a bit again into yeah the athlete needs to think about it uh themselves a bit more so maybe a bit more on that individual responsibility side of things but yeah can you comment more on that how the feedback you're giving or or asking them for right and so so the biggest thing is like you're just the way i think about it is that you're you're a lot of the questions you're asking for engagement and so you're you're asking them to do you know you're asking them questions that basically if they're not engaged in what they're doing they can't answer and so you're trying to mo- mostly check for engagement because if they're engaged and you've and you've given them tasks that are going to be helpful in, uh, for their learning, they're going to figure things out sooner than later. And so what you're really trying to do is make sure they're engaged. If they're starting to get frustrated, you can start to ha- maybe give them a hint or something, or encourage them, or help them get back on track, or help them refocus. And so, you know, a lot of the communication is helping keep, keep them engaged in what they're doing, provide them a little bit of uh, a couple of extra tricks or, hey, have you thought about it like this? You're not necessarily telling them what to do, but helping maybe, maybe guiding them towards, um, you know, a better approach. Uh, and I think that that really helps them, one, one stay engaged and, and two, they start to figure out that they can figure this stuff out. And when they really start to learn that they can problem solve and they can figure things out, then things become really exciting for for everyone because, you know, I think one one of the coolest things about sport is that you can show people that they're powerful and that they can learn things and they can figure things out for themselves. And and you're really helping kind of facilitate that process. And every time you just like tell someone what to do, you're kind of taking that power away from them. Yeah. Uh, And do you think that the constraints-led approach is uh, something that is appropriate to implement across all ages basically and ability levels or are there situations where it would be more or less effective yeah and so i think what what's important is it kind of goes back to that individual thing is so at different age levels different skill levels they're going to have different um you know they're going to need to do different things and so i think that's where the, the principles stay the same the activities that you would have someone do can be very different depending on someone's skill level or their age level because you know an eight-year-old's not going to have the same you know, ability to focus or the, or the, you know, the cognitive ability to kind of like figure stuff out. And so you're going to have to give them different things than you would, you know, a 35 year old that is learning to swim for the first time. Like they they might be at the same skill level, but they're going to have very different expectations and different um, ability levels too. And so it matters how old they are, how mature they are and, and the skills they have. But the basic concept is the same is that you're putting them in situations where it's more likely that they're going to learn a skill and that they can figure out the best way to do things. And so you just have to scale it and you're trying to create learning experiences for everyone as opposed to just kind of like instructing you, instructing them. So I think the concepts are, are the same and the concepts are equally effective. It's just different in terms of how you implement it because they need different things. 
can you think of an example of how how would you do it with with a group of eight year olds um yeah just one set yeah so i think the 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 most important skill at, at that level is is kind of the ability to like float in the water because you you see these kids and they're 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 trying to learn freestyle but they're struggling so much to just basically learn this you know how to manage their body and and water and so i think what's really really important at that age group it, group is giving them a lot of information and or a lot of experience in terms of how to float, how to manage their body. And so you're doing all sorts of different floating exercises, stuff, stuff like that. So they start to get really, really comfortable in the water. Um, and I think that's, that's super important. And then, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, something I've, I've, I've found that can be really helpful for those, for kids like that. So they do a lot of splash and their arms and legs are going all over the place. You just tell them to swim as silently as possible. And that tends to help them relax, clean things up and stuff like that. And so you're not telling them exactly what to do, but you're giving them a, a, a task constraint that forces them to change. And so stuff like that can be really effective um, because, you know, expecting an eight-year-old to be like, all right, I want you to spend the next 30 minutes thinking exactly where your head is. Like they're going to do that for 10 seconds and then they're going to be thinking about God only knows what. Yeah, even counting strokes, I'm sure that right. that would be impossible to get them to count strokes. <laughs> right. Well, so so that's kind of funny because it's concrete though, and they, they can make a game out of it. You can that that tends to work pretty well. Um, and you're just like, and and it almost works too well because you're like, all right, we're going to do eight twenty fives. I want you to take um, one less stroke per lap, and they get like, you know, they'll they're almost take it so literally they'll literally just kick across the pool and be like i took zero strokes and it's like all right well you accomplished what i said but that's not really the point and so in some ways like it can be really effective but you have to you know use it appropriately with them mm, yeah all right um and uh are there some any challenges that you that you have come across with using this uh in in coaching in swimming yeah, for sure. And like with like I kind of I mentioned earlier, everything everything's a skill. And so when you're first starting out with it, um, or with anything, it's going to be tough to get get the results you want. And so, you know, some of the the things that are hard is is you really have to know what the the skills and the end goal that you're you're trying to accomplish. And so if you're not clear about really clear about what skills are really important, that can be tough because it's going to feel like you're bouncing all all over the place. Um, and then another another thing is so whenever I give if I give the same task the same expectation to three different people um, they're going to react differently and so you have to have a sense of what those reactions might be because you're going to have to do something different after that based upon what that happens and so there's a skill in terms of learning what's likely going to happen when I ask someone to do something and then what are the potential you know what being aware of what the um, the potential outcomes are, and then having, um, you know, kind of a plan B to, to account for those. And so knowing what to, knowing how to adjust and what to adjust is really important because there's a lot of times where you have your first option, you you expect that it's going to work pretty well, and then it doesn't work at all. And you have to figure out how to manage that and what else to do af after that. And so kind of along the same lines, you have to have a few different options, um, in terms of what you want them to do. And so I, I was, as an example, like breathing can be pretty tough to, to, to help people figure out. And so I was talking to a coach, um, you know, about a week ago and he was, we were kind of discussing how to help someone improve their breathing. And so like that paddle drill can be really effective, but, but sometimes it doesn't work. And so some of the other things that we talked about were like, you can wear a snorkel and that'll help someone feel what it's like to move through the water 
without moving their head. And then you have them take the snorkel off and try to make it feel the same way. Even when they're breathing, you can have them practice breathing to the opposite side because sometimes that, that feels better for them and they can try to transfer that over to the other side. And so you have to have a bunch of different ways to solve the same problem because you don't necessarily need to know, or you don't necessarily know what's going to happen with a given person. And that takes time to accumulate, you know, all those different options. And and again, also understand the effect that they're going to have. And so it takes a lot of practice, like the coach has to practice using these ideas and it takes a lot of experience to consistently get the results you want, but, you know, and that's the same thing with, with any, any skill and any coaching. And so I think that's the major challenge is that it just takes practice to, to learn to think this way and to be able to implement it effectively. If you were coaching triathletes in the swimming, swimming part of triathlon, how would you implement a constraint led approach in, in that group in ways that you're not necessarily doing with your, with your pool swimmers? Yeah. And so, and so similar to with the, with the age group, um, ideas, it's, it's the same, it's the same concept. It's the same approach. You just have a different goal. And so, you know, one of the issues that, that triathletes, they're, they're, they're swimming, you know, almost all, uh, triathlons are, are the shortest triathlon is, you know, what would be one of the longer or longer than most swimming events. And so, you know, you have to prepare for that from, so there's going to be a more of an aerobic component for sure. You're not going to be using the walls because there are no walls. You know, you, you have to be, you have to use the legs differently because one, it's a longer race, but two, that's just the first piece of the race. And the rest of the race, you're using your legs, you know, extremely, you know, that's all you're using. Um, and so it's also part of the whole race. So the, the goal is not necessarily to optimize the swim. It's to optimize the whole triathlon. And then, um, and, and then you're certainly dealing with open water and you have to manage, um, you know, people, the chop, the condition, the sighting, all that stuff. And so you just have to take those uh, goals into account. And so, you know, a perfect example is, you know, a lot of athletes are going to be racing with, with wetsuits. And so that changes, you know, the hip position and, and, and so the use of a pool buoy or something similar, or even just training in a wetsuit, that becomes something that's, that's more realistic. Um, and so w- with, regardless of the event distance, it's always, all right, what do you have to do? You know, what, what are the performance demands of the event? Um, what's going to the best what's going to be the best way to learn those skills? And then how do we just go about training it? And so I think, you know, it's, it's pretty similar. It's just a different, um, you know, a little bit different outcome. And so the the intensity is probably gonna be, you know, a little bit lower. It's going to be more, more aerobic. There's going to be less legs and you have to kind of swim more continuously. And so that's some of the, the, the different challenges that uh, an open water triathlon would um, present. You just have to train for those. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, is this something that an individual, somebody listening to this interview, can they implement some of these um, concepts on their own without actually having a coach on deck to 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 do it for them? Yeah. So I think the 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 biggest thing that that anyone can do is they they should c- consistently count their strokes and get their times, because when you do that, those are automatically act acting as constraints, and so you start to get a clear goal of what's good for you and what's normal for you and what, you know, it also gives you a goal to shoot for in terms of improving. And that's automatically going to change how you swim for the better because you're trying to make progress in those areas. And so that doesn't require, um, you know, any expertise or, or any, you know, fancy equipment. You can just use those things as guideposts and, and you're always kind of playing with those. And so I think that's something that anyone can, can do. Um, 
that would be, you know, my, my, my biggest recommendation. Um, and, and what you can do is you can, you know, practice, um, taking more or less strokes, practice swimming faster or slower. And you try to do that with, um, intention. So you're deliberately trying to swim faster, deliberately trying to swim slower, deliberately trying to take more strokes or take less strokes. And that gives you a lot of control over how you're swimming. And that can be really powerful because, you know, especially in open water, things change. You might need to make a surge. You might need to get around this person. You might need to, you know, do whatever you need to get to the buoy so you can um, turn fat, you know, ahead of a pack or whatever. It gives you the tools to change how you swim. And that can be really, really powerful. So that's one thing that people can do. Um, I I think another thing is to, instead of doing long, continuous swims, doing shorter ones, because, and you can just take you can keep the rest period really short, but every time you stop and you either get your times, your stroke counts, or, or you get a break, you get the chance to kind of quickly reassess, get some feedback, and then go on to the next thing. And so if you just, if you, if your practice is literally a 2000 meter straight swim, there's not a whole lot of feedback in there. And, and that's going to be tough to, to learn because, you know, like I said earlier, the more you can get feedback and the better the feedback, the, the faster you're going to, to swim. And then the, with, with the, the training tools, I think using them uh, and being aware of the impact that they have on your swimming. And so whenever it's using them for with it purpose and with intention can be really helpful in helping learning. So like that, that paddle cap freestyle drill, holding the paddles upside down, using those for a purpose can be really, can be really powerful. You, what you want to avoid is just using them because, well, I can swim faster when I wear fins. Like that's not a good reason. Or I can swim faster when I wear a pool buoy. That's, that's not a good reason unless, you know, you're using it specifically to, to try to improve. I think those are things that you don't necessarily have to, um, have much expertise with, but when you use those kind of ideas, it can be really helpful in improving your swimming. Yeah. Yeah. Not just a personal anecdote, but I, I, started implementing some stroke counting in my in my swims especially in the warm-up sets that i do after just getting inspired by by the example sets in your book and and i definitely felt already after a few swims that oh this is a really kind of i guess almost a new dimension of um, yeah an, an yeah. area where i can improve and and track my progress in swimming and, and yeah. yeah i feel like it can be very effective so so that two two really important points there is one it's it's, it's a way to track how well you're swimming. And so it, it's not perfect and, and there's, but, it, but it's, but it's a good, it's another, exactly. It's another dimension to how you're swimming as opposed to just how fast you're swimming. And and the other thing that's really valuable too is, so say you're doing um, eight 200s uh, freestyle and you've been really consistent with your, your times. And so you'd think that's great, but, but if you were counting your strokes, you might have noticed that the last 50 of every 200, you started taking three more strokes. Well, that's probably not a good sign because that means your skills are kind of falling apart. And if you're doing that every 200, well, and your, and your race is, uh, you know, a 1500 meter swim. Well, that means that after the first 200, you're, you're falling apart the whole time. But if you were counting your strokes, now you're aware of that. And the next repetition, you can do something to try to keep that under control. And so just that simple awareness is going to help people, um, manage their swimming a little bit more effectively. Yeah. Uh, are there any other advice that you would give to both to swimmers, triathletes, and to coaches of swimmers and triathletes uh, based around this discussion today? Yeah. So I think the, um, 
the the athlete stuff is is basically what I said before, and and that would apply to, to coaches too. And I think for for coaches, the biggest thing is is to have a plan for how you know what skills you want athletes to learn, and then have a plan for how they're going to learn them. And as, as as opposed to just doing it kind of haphazardly or not at all, really think about what the outcomes you want are, and then you know have a plan, and and that plan can be whatever you want and however you want to do it. But just think about with some intention about how things are going to change um, over the course of a season so that athletes can actually learn the skills they need to be successful. And then the second thing for for coaches is, um, you know, what I always encourage and the way I always try to think about it is instead of um, telling someone what to do, I try to think about how can I put them in a position where they can experience it. And so another um, example is like, so we're talking about the, the forearm and using the pole rather than telling someone to do that, what you can have them do is like hang their hands on the gutter with their whole forearm flat on the gutter and then just kind of push into it a little bit. And that's going to help them get a feel for what what it's like to have pressure on their whole forearm and their hand and also kind of what it's like to squeeze their lats a little bit. And so that's, you know, it, it's not a, it's not a perfect exercise, but it can help them experience or feel what they're trying to do. Um, before they before and then they can try to apply that into their swimming and and you can use the same concepts for any skill it's just all right instead of just telling them what to do how can i put them in a position where they can experience it because when they, once they experience it the odds that they can repeat it are going to be much higher yeah yeah i think i think that's uh something that's worth repeating that it's it's not just this is just not just about swimming but it's i think in in football or soccer for example yeah, this is sure it's getting really big and obviously that's the sport which probably has the most money in the world and a lot of right. uh resources are put into developing better training methods and uh yeah it seems like people are really <laughs> really excited yeah. about the the prospects of improving skills this way with a constraints approach but right. uh, yeah this has been great andrew so let's just uh, move on to the rapid fire questions so take one sentence to answer each of these and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to swimming or endurance sports yeah so i had, I had a lot of them so I, th- I think the one that stood out to me is, is is actually is a swimming book it's called the science of winning by jan albrecht he's a uh, dutch physiologist um, however, I think it would be, it's really useful for anyone, regardless of, um, what, what endurance sport they work with. Uh, it's super clear and it provides some interesting frameworks to, yeah. to think about endurance training with. Yeah. Uh, I have interviewed him on the podcast about that. Oh, he's okay, actually, cool. he's actually from Belgium, even though he did oh, work with the Dutch Federation okay. for a long time. Okay. Um, what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? So I think the biggest one uh, is probably education um, because an education takes, you know, any form, you know, listening to this podcast is, is to me a form of education for sure. And so any, anything that has helped um, me see the world in a different way, help me live, live a better life. And, and, you know, I think the biggest value of education is, is you let other people solve problems for you because, you know, they've spent 20 years trying to become an expert in something and you can, you know, in an hour, <laughs> learn, learn their biggest things and and take 20 years of experience and kind of get put in an hour and get, get most of that experience. It can be really helpful. And who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Um, I would say probably my parents, um, you know, they both, they both live with, with integrity. And I think that was pretty, a pretty valuable lesson for sure growing up. And uh, finally, where can people follow you? And also, uh, please mention your book again and the name of it and, and if there's anything else that you, any other projects that you have going on. 
Sure. So the, the book is called The Constraints Led Approach to Swimming, and uh, you can find it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I think Routledge is the publisher, and, and I think it's on sale right now. I think that's the, the cheapest place to get it. Um, and then I have a website, which is uh, coachandrewsheaf.com. So coach, my first name, my last name.com. And on that, you can – I have a, a quick free nine, nine short nine video course. I think it's like 45 minutes total. Um, it can show you how to actually design some of these sets using these ideas. And then there's um, a couple book bonuses too that are that also kind of show you how to take training sets and turn them into skill sets without learning the training be- or without losing the training benefits. And so those are super practical. And so anyone that's interested in those, those are free. Um, it could be a good way to kind of get get started with some of these ideas. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a pleasure talking with you and I hope to do it again another time. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com with uh, some relevant links that you can check out, both uh, related, related episodes and also some papers and, of course, Andrew's website and book. And if you are a coach, I do strongly recommend getting Andrew's book because I found that it has really challenged my thinking a lot. And uh, I think those are the best kinds of learning experiences, the ones that challenge your thinking because that's how it evolves. If you want to improve your triathlon performance and level up to achieve your next goal, then there's probably no single better thing that you can do than to get some expert help along the way. And at Scientific Triathlon, we provide coaching services that cater to every need from beginners to professionals, where the athlete is in the center, the coaching is grounded in communication and individualization, and the coaches all have a wealth of experience, knowledge, and coaching skills. And if coaching is out of your budget or not for you, then we also have ready-made training plans for different athlete levels and goal events and hundreds if not thousands of athletes have already set big pbs and reached new performance levels with these plans Uh, we also have exchange and or money back guarantees so it's a risk-free investment you can find out all about our coaching training plans customized training plans and consultation options on scientifictriathlon.com and you can discuss these options by emailing me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a k finally big thanks to our sponsors form that you can find on formswim.com forward slash tts your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis, and use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the form smart swim goggles. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate swim trainer to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes available at home, you can get a time-efficient Senate workout done that will help you swim better and stronger. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on senatesimtrainer.com or slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft love.